Our reading from the gospel today is taken from Matthew chapter 13, reading verses 1 to 9 and then 18 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately there sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding so that we might not only hear it, O oh Lord, but that we might perform it and obey. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the Lord opens up this uh, uh, matchless parable today in a boat. There's a great crowd of people, and he is, he is so crowded that he feels compelled, compelled to, uh, to step away onto the water and get into a boat, and I am sorely tempted to fly off into allegorical fancy <laughs> today as I speak to you about uh, Jesus in the boat uh, telling this parable, but I'll refrain from, from doing that. But it is important to recognize that Jesus is... As, is, as was his custom, Jesus is facing a great, great crowd of people. And he has something to say about the crowds of people and the way that the kingdom of God comes to them. And so I want to say uh, a few things today about the parable of the sore. Uh, we should note from the very beginning that this is all about the publication of the word, that the work of the kingdom goes forth as a sower sowing seed. The sower sows the seed of the word of the kingdom. But it happens that as the seed falls, it falls to four classes of, 
of people. And I want to talk about those four different kinds of people in the kingdom today. The first category of people, as we read in the parable, are those who are in the position to hear, but they have no inclination towards the message because it makes no sense to them whatsoever. Their minds find nothing attractive in the idea that humans are so desperately wicked that they need a savior, and certainly nothing desirable in the thought that the highest form of life is to live a life to God and for God and in God. Say to this person that the chief end of life is knowing God and delighting in God and being conformed to the image of God and you'll get glazed eyes and a yawn. In this case, Jesus says, these kinds of people are intractably hard. Their hearts are desperately stony and the hardness of their hearts is pictured by the image of the path. This, Jesus says, is what was sown along the path, the hard, beaten down path where nothing grows because of the constant traffic. The word of God preached to these individuals bounces off them like the spray off Gibraltar. It just doesn't affect them at all. Nor does the seed remain long. For the devil is sure to come to these individuals and to scoop up the seed as soon as it lands. And there's no mistaking these kinds of people. There's no growth here at all. There's no pretense to faith. There's no confession. There's only sheer indifference towards the gospel. It's not necessarily antagonism, but it's pure and sheer indifference. And most of us today know a number of people who fit this description. They're not necessarily offended by the gospel. They just don't care. <laughs> they just don't care. But after this first kind of person comes a more difficult kind of person that I want to explore with you. It's more complicated. After this, the dividing line between belief and unbelief becomes seemingly less clear. For the next two types of people in the parable are those who seem to believe. They not only hear the word, but we read that they respond to the word with joy. Their emotions are overflowing, and they apparently confess the faith that they receive. The second type of person that Jesus presents is the rocky ground. And you might see this person next to you in church. You might see this person tearfully singing a hymn with upraised hands. You might see this person going up to receive the sacrament, bowing reverently in prayer, nodding affirmatively at all of the preaching. You remember those folks listening to Ezekiel's preaching? What marvelous preaching, Ezekiel, they would say. You might find this person in your Bible study glowingly speaking of their love for Christ. In fact, you might find this person prophesying in Christ's name and healing the sick and casting out demons. And yet it's very, very important today to hear what Jesus says when he says that these experiences are not the real thing. This is not the life that's been transformed by grace. It's merely transitory. It's ephemeral. It's superficial, he says. It's entirely human. It's not divine because it lacks something altogether essential. It lacks root. It lacks root. 
Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this. He writes, Luther and Latimer, Baxter and Wesley, Whitfield and Barrage, he goes on and on, Roland Hill, they were all keenly aware to the deceitfulness of the human heart. They knew full well, and here he sounds kind of Tolkien-esque, he knew, he, they knew full well that all that is gold, all that is not gold that glitters. That conviction is not conversion. That feeling is not faith. That sentiment is not grace. And all that blossoms does not come to fruit. The first time I encountered this was a terrible shock to me. That is the first time I encountered it outside of the written page. I've seen many people wrestle with their faith. I've been sympathetic to those who are compelled to articulate their doubts. But the first time I came face to face with the sheer evaporation of what I had deemed to be legitimate faith, the first time I saw that evaporate in front of my eyes was a terrible, terrible shock to me. And this was back in my Toronto days. And I had a friend who I prayed with. I had a friend who was zealous for Christ, who would go out into, after uh, on his lunch break at work, he'd go out and he'd witness for Christ. And I'll never forget the night when we gathered together around table and he brazenly denied the faith. And looking me square in the eyes, he denounced the person of Christ. It was a very haunting moment for me, and I've learned to appreciate the depth and the weightiness of Jesus' parable here, which is saying that going to church and receiving the word with joy, experiencing great emotion, receiving the truth of Jesus, reciting the creed, proclaiming the message yourself, in public circles. None of these things means that the individual is a true believer. For here, Jesus says, in spite of all these experiences, there is no rootedness. There is no downward and invisible growth beneath the surface. There is no hidden reality to the person. There is no place for the seed of the word to establish itself. Why? Because the heart has never been changed. There's no new creation. The person has not been born again. For a long while now, we've been in the process of building an extension at the back of our house, and it's been going on and on and on and on. It's the working project that never ends. And we have this framed-in building at the back of our house, but without windows. And the inside is completely unfinished. It's open to the elements. And the floor is just packing sand. There's nothing else there. There's foundation wall and packing sand. And tiny little seeds, it seems, have been floating through the air, floating in through the windows. And they've established themselves on the sand. And little plants have begun to spring up. But there's no substance in the ground to fix themselves to. And after a feverish spurt of growth, they just stop growing. And it's as easy to pull those things up as it is to slide my hand through the air. There's no rootedness. These people, Jesus tells us, they endure for a while. It may be months. It may be years. It may be decades. But ultimately, they fall away, for there is no underground reality. You see, when it comes to Christianity, the most important element is what you don't see. Your life 
we read in Colossians. And here, Luther often will wax eloquent. Your life is what? It is hidden with Christ in God. That's not to say that the visible is unimportant, but it is not the most important thing. Visible growth is important. We read that today, the 30, the 60, the 100 fold, these are all important and God chooses his people so that they can bear visible fruit to the glory of God. But the most important element is the hidden rootedness of the plant. It's the underground reality, the secret life in God that nourishes and maintains the visible fruit. And this is precisely what it means to be born again. The man or the woman born again by grace, by a direct act of God, this man or woman is given a subsurface reality. They're given a new heart, a new nature that is secretly and invisibly joined to Christ. And therefore, it's not going to church. It's not saying your prayers. It's not learning special rites and some new moral code. To be a Christian is to be born again. And to be born again means to be so invisibly united to Jesus that his bone becomes my bone and his flesh becomes my flesh, so that what I possess infinite room for the word of the Lord to grow. I possess infinite space in my life to seek a deeper and deeper and deeper life in God. That is the reality of the Christian experience. As Peter says, we became what? We become partakers of the divine nature. Christ becomes our true root. And in Jesus, I can now grow forever. In Jesus, I have the room and the space to bear fruit unto all eternity. But for all those who have no root, who, have this, who, who don't have this hidden reality, who've not been born again by grace, when trouble comes, when affliction comes, when hardship comes, they will invariably fall away. Such a person is the rocky ground. Secondly, the, 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 the person of the thorns. The same goes for the person in the garden of thorns. The third category of person are those who also hear the word. And they appear, for a season at least, to manifest some kind of growth. Something in this third category has to be growing. Some kind of plant has to be growing because something's being choked out. There's a plant of some sort, whatever it may be. It's not like the hard path. There's some visible reality of growth here. And like the person of the rocky ground, they too may be enthusiastically present in the church. They may seem very, very glad for the Lord's Day to come around, but whatever growth is present, whatever Christian experience is visible here, it ultimately cannot compete with the pleasures of the world. Little by little, the pleasures of the sensible world, they win, and creation becomes more important than the creator. The visible becomes more important for the invisible, for these kinds of folks. And this is just the problem. 
You remember what the Apostle John, how he goes to describe the temptations of this world, and he, he describes them in terms of the, the, uh, the visible, um, the visible pleasures. He writes of the world being governed by the ascendancy of three desires. He says, first, there's the appetite of the body. That is the desire for food or the desire for drink, the desires for sex, the desires for all kinds of creaturely comforts. Secondly, there's the appetite of the eyes. That is the overmastering desire to put your confidence in things that you can see, to make what you can see the final arbiter of your decisions. And then thirdly, there's the pride of life, the firm conviction that what is most important in this life and the goods are the goods of this life and what this life can offer without any real regard for the life that is to come. These things, says John, are not of the Father. This is how the world thinks. And scores and scores of men and women give themselves to the pursuit of worldly pleasure in one form or the other. It may be gross hedonism. It may be the person who's the licentious carouser, or it may be the high culture enthusiast. It may be the person who's racing to the bottom of a bottle, or it can be the person who's putting all of her confidence in art galleries and fine dining and symphonies. What they all have in common is that they are governed by the cares of this world, and they are persuaded by the deceitfulness of what this world says will make them rich. And there are many things in this world that can enrich us in various ways. There are many persuasively rich things. There are many things in this world that will come to you and to me and they'll whisper in our ears, I will make you rich. I will make you rich if only you had me. What completeness you will feel. What satisfaction you will feel if only you had me. What happiness you will know. How rich you will be if only you had me. And it could be money. It could be sex. It could be promotion or some form of workplace advancement. It could be education or learning or awards. It could be some kind of self-realization or it could be companionship. But all these things have one thing in common, says Jesus. They are all deceitful. They are all the promises of the creature to satisfy us by itself, to satisfy us ultimately by only themselves. And they deceive us because they can't fulfill us. You see, the apple didn't do it for Eve. The apple came to Eve and said, if only you had me, how happy you would be. The apple didn't do it for Eve and the creature can't do it for us today. There is only one thing that ultimately satisfies the human person and it's not here. There's only one thing that will ultimately satisfy the person and it's not here. We are permitted as God's people glimpses we are permitted to taste the good of the kingdom, but we do not yet sit down to the feast. We are those who look away. We are the children of grace who always are looking beyond, and the message of the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation and even beyond before, the people of God are always eagerly waiting for their reward, and they live lives straining for a prize that is beyond. And this is why they endure hardship. This is why they endure suffering. This is why they embrace a cross, because they believe that there's something better 
there is a better country. They believe that they are strangers and exiles on this earth, and they have looked with the eyes of faith and have seen promises that have greeted them from afar. The promise of perfect happiness, the promise of perfect joy, the promise of perfect fulfillment beyond measure, beyond description. And so the children of grace like Moses, they reject the fleeting pleasures of sin. They reject the deceitful promise that this world can satisfy. They believe that God has provided something better for them. And so they are willing to do without. And my brothers and sisters, this is the word of the kingdom from verse 19. The word of the kingdom comes to us and it tells us this, that God has provided something better. Even as we look around and we see all the charms of this world, the gospel tells us that the Lord has provided something better, a better country that is a heavenly one. And so the answer isn't here. But without the new nature, a nature that pines and yearns more than anything else to be satisfied in God, the hearer of the gospel will purchase the lie that our good and our happiness and our satisfaction is to be found here. And my brothers and sisters, it is not here. It is not here. It is not here. There is something better for the people of God. And finally, we have the person of the good soil. This is the heart that has been prepared to receive the word by grace. This is the heart where there is room to grow. Now, I want to conclude by saying two things today about the good soil. Let me say two things that Jesus is not saying. First, and emphatically, what Jesus is not saying today is that the gospel can only take root in those people with good hearts. First and emphatically, what Jesus is not saying is that the gospel can only take root in those people who have good hearts. You've got three classes of people, three classes of sinful hearts, and then you have these noble hearts with these good soils. And if you're lucky enough to get these kinds of people in your church, you might begin to see gospel growth. And that kind of thinking turns the whole gospel upside down. That is that it would affirm that Jesus came to save the healthy and to turn away the sick. But that's not Jesus' message at all. Jesus comes to save the sinner. Jesus comes to save the worst of sinners, hearts that are desperately hard, desperately opposed to him. He came to so transform them that they might be capable of the word of the kingdom. And so Spurgeon says, to hear the outward word is common privilege. To know the mysteries is a gift of sovereign grace. Many are called. The gospel goes out to all. Few are chosen. And so none of us today who find ourselves truly and graciously and effectively alive to God this morning have any reason or cause to boast. We aren't any more inclined to God. We weren't any less rebellious, but God chose us for reasons of his own. He gave us a new heart. He gave us fertile soul. And it's all by grace that we're saved. And that's something that we need to recall daily. So first of all, Jesus is not saying that the gospel can only take root in those people who have good hearts. Secondly, and no less emphatically, Jesus is not saying that the good soil is not afflicted by these three enemies, the devil, persecution, and the deceitfulness of riches. A good garden 
with good soil knows the affliction of pests who come to steal its fruits. A good garden with good soil knows the blasting and the withering heat of the sun. A good garden with good soil knows the noxious and the crowding presence of weeds. The genuine fruit-bearing Christian is not immune to the enemies of the world. We all must battle these things, and every day we are assaulted. We are assaulted by the devil, we are assaulted by discouraging hardship, and we are dis assaulted by the, dece the, the, the deceitfulness of our world, even though we are the people of grace. Even though our growth in godliness is a sure thing, our growth in godliness can be impeded by these enemies of the word. And just because we are the children of grace, and just because we are the children of God, does not mean that you and I are growing as we ought to grow. The writer to the Hebrews, writing in his epistle, says to these dear people, you ought to be teachers by now, he says, but you need to be taught the basic principles all over again. You ought to be drinking or eating steak right now. I ought to be serving you a filet mignon, he writes, but now you can only receive milk. And so it's true that even the genuine believer with a good soil can become dull of hearing and can become woefully immature. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. Paul says you're carnal. You're carnal. He doesn't say they're not Christians. He doesn't say they don't have that good soil where the seed of the word is planted in their hearts, but he says you're carnal. And so even those who are of the good soil can be so afflicted by these enemies of the word that their lives become, uh, come across as woefully immature. And so my, my uh, word for you today in light of this, you who have been chosen by God and know the stirring of grace in your heart, you who are setting your hopes on the life to come and are saying no to the deceitfulness of this age, I say to you, be fruitful. You notice that Jesus sets across three types of fruit-bearing Christians, 30, 60, and 100-fold. And I'll say to you, as Matthew Henry said to me, among fruitful Christians, some are more fruitful than others. We should aim at the highest degree. We should aim at the 100, each one of us. And so today, let us grow then. And let us ask God to make our hearts so rich and fertile that the seed of the word might continue to grow forever and ever as we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.